Okay, so I'm here with Kim Edwards, and Kim, I face uh, a pretty difficult task today, and that is knowing where to begin, because we uh, we met the other day at the Warri swimming pool. You noticed I was wearing a triathlon suit, I yeah, think. Yes. Yeah, and and you said, oh, you know, you're you're dressed funny, and and <laughs> oh no, I recognised a fellow triathlete. That's, That's right. what it was. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, uh, and I said, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a tri suit, and 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 from there, from that conversation, I learned a lot about you in the space of maybe twenty or 30 minutes mm. um which to give a sneak peek to everyone uh includes you organizing and running underground triathlons and endurance events in the middle east uh, because those sorts of events are illegal uh, to to yes. run over there and yes. and even now it's still illegal for women to participate in right so that's uh that is a glimpse into your life that I got and I imagine that is just going to lead us into a smorgasbord of other interesting things that you've done. <laughs> so how about you take the reins from here for a bit and introduce yourself and we'll figure out where to go from there. Well, I've was actually I've been working in the Middle East for a long time. Obviously now I've moved to Cairns for a new job that I absolutely love, but I I've had a lot of experience in the Middle East since the 80s. I moved there first in 1980 and I was involved in relief and development work for about 23 years. So it took me to lots of exciting places. So my first war, for example, was in Beirut in, in 1980 during the Civil War. But I also worked in Iraq, in uh, Kurdistan area of Iraq during the first Gulf War in 1990. Um, 91, 92 and then um, I've since then worked in uh, Saudi Arabia as uh, as well as Jordan and, and Israel plenty, plenty of countries, Afghanistan set up schools in Afghanistan You were in Afghan Wow, yeah. now I'm now I'm jealous. Now yeah. I'm really jealous. You're Jenna, my girlfriend. I'll tell you later. That's my dream destination oh, to get to. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, it's it's an amazing place. I actually really loved Afghanistan. So I was there in 2006 and 2007 and set up a, a, a language school there in Kabul. So so I've done a lot of things. So so I did. I went to Saudi Arabia right at the beginning of 2013. And Saudi was not so Saudi's not my first gigs. And uh, Saudi Arabia is just one of those, oh, it's an incredible place. I absolutely loved it. So I was there for seven years. And my main role there while I was there was I opened one of the first women's training colleges in Saudi. And, and because of that, I lived in a Bedouin town for a year in quite a remote place. So remote, I was apparently the first Western woman to, to live in this area. Uh, outside of, of Riyadh so I had a great experience and, and it was great to be in Saudi during a time of huge transition and transformation of the country so I got to witness women driving for the first time I'm the second Australian woman to get a Saudi driver's license and uh, opening opening a school a college for for women where women have never seen work before, they've never experienced work outside the home, they've never had a boss before, they've never worked in a professional environment. So to be part of that whole thing. When I first went to Saudi, there were no women working in shops, for example. So even at the supermarket, um, any office, it was all men. And so it was like with the whole prospect of opening a training college for women when there were no jobs. So the jobs came several years later and the country opened up. So so here you are training women for a concept that isn't real yet in that place. So absolutely wonderful. So I was there for seven years. Yeah, and I ended up coming back to Australia only because of COVID. I actually got stranded in Australia. Um, so it was, uh, it was, you know, what's brilliant about that is people usually say I got stranded in and then it's insert anywhere, but Australia yes. in their fight to get back to Australia. I don't think I've heard anyone no, say I, I, got I came home in for Christmas. It was actually my first Christmas in eight years. And, um, in 2019, I was only supposed to be in Australia for, you know, about a, a month or six weeks break. And then I was going back in February to commence work again, just to go back. So it was great to be home. Little did we know that in those few weeks, the whole world changed. And by the time I went to go back to work, um, to back in Saudi Arabia, 
all the doors were closed, all the flights were closed, borders were closed. Um, Saudi Arabia was hit very hard with COVID. Actually, lost a, a very dear friend from from COVID. Somebody who was very healthy and young and fit, triathlete, and um, and so that really was just shook us up, you know. So it hit Saudi long before it kind of really came and impacted Australia. And uh, and so yeah, most of my friends were stranded in Saudi, and they were all emailing me, going, "Oh, you're so lucky that at least you're home because they couldn't get out, they couldn't get home, their family couldn't get into Saudi." So, so I didn't even look for a job really for that whole first year because we originally thought it was going to be three months. Okay, well I'll go in April, you know, we'll we'll start again in April, and then it was like, oh, well maybe August, oh maybe September, maybe. And so after a year, I finally thought, oh my gosh, I don't think this is actually ending. And so I had to start reinventing myself and realising that I was, I was back in Australia. So yeah. it, was, it was actually quite difficult. I had went through quite a tough time actually as far as, because it was out of my control. And I mean, COVID just impacted everybody so, so much in so many different ways. But for me, it meant the end of a great career in a country that, and with the pe- people I absolutely loved. Yeah, yeah, I had a... Um I had a similar experience in New Zealand where I started this podcast and where I got my start in journalism and and I you know I deliberately came back to Australia to be with um, family uh, more sort of mid pandemic but you you don't realize that when you do come back you know just how much you have left behind I, yes, I suppose yeah. for me at least in that rush to get back and then realizing I can't get back to yes. New Zealand where I've just set up my whole life um, mm-hmm. for the foreseeable future. It mm. does hit you hard, doesn't it, it? It does, yeah. So while it was lovely to be home, it was great, but it just wasn't what I was planning. I really, to be honest, I thought I'd be in Saudi for the rest of my work, working career. And so to suddenly have to go, gosh, I have to come back. And because I'd been out of Australia for so long, and most of my career, to be honest, has been overseas, and so it was. It was quite. It was quite an interesting time. Lovely to be home for sure. Love my family. I've got four grandchildren, so just having that quality time has been wonderful. So, um, but yeah. So Saudi is just one of those countries that people, I think, have a really negative um, perception. Image, yeah. And and it goes the other way. I'll be honest. Um, the only, the only time Australia's ever on the news in the Middle East is if there's a flood or a plague of mice or something. And they'll always interview people sitting in the pub and, and they'll interview, you know, a very small representation of Australia. And I'll sit there watching it going, no, we're not all like that, but that's the image that they have. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so the same kind of goes the other way. So most people have a very narrow media presentation of what Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is like and particularly because it's such an extreme country it's one of, at the time I was there it was one of the most you know hardest countries in the world to get into you have to have an exit visa to, to leave so it's not just a visa to get into Saudi you've actually got to get a visa well, you've got to, to apply to actually get to out. apply to actually leave the country wow you can't just rock up and leave and I suppose they do all their checks to make sure that you're okay to leave in that mm-hmm. process that's yeah. right and you can't leave until unless your employee has, has released you to, to go. So there's so many restrictions in Saudi. And when I first went there, I mean, pe- people, when they think of Saudi Arabia, yep, they sand dunes, desert, um, oil. women, oil, uh, women wearing a buyers, women all wearing black, men wearing white kafirs. I mean, um, that, that's it. That's kind of what, what, you, what you see. And so you get this black, white and sandy coloured image of the country so in a way that's what you see and people also will associate it with the negative aspects as well like terrorism and so on so all of those things might be true but it's only one really small part of it so um well, so it wasn't very nice of that plane i know very inconvenient that, that plane moment, to go i wonder yeah. where those people are going <laughs> yeah. <to> wonder <laughs> um so i really when you're first there you're really confronted with all things you can and cannot do and people tend to focus on all the things they can't do, especially for women. So absolutely very restrictive. When I first went there for the first six years, you couldn't drive. Um, they have to get a range of driver. Um, everything's illegal pretty much. You know, it's illegal to mix with men. It's illegal to dance. It's illegal. At that time, pub- public music was illegal. Um, I suppose and, alcohol consumption and oh, everything. Oh, absolutely. absolutely yeah. illegal. No, no alcohol. Um, no social gatherings as such. No... Um, 
was the other um, well, no social gathering so no there's no such thing as a concert or a, no anything like no that. at the time there wasn't so and and so no cinemas um, so not a lot of recreational activities and so uh, very very restricted right and so you tend to become all consumed with that when you first go there because you're learning all the rules. And yes, we had r- religious police who mm. control all of that. I was going to ask you about them. We're, we're, the religious police I know now have sort of had their powers reduced, um, and especially after that really hor- horrific incident uh, that people may or may not know about, which we can go into if we feel the need. But when you were there, did they still have all those powers yes. like the police pretty much have? Absolutely, yes, yes. Oh, you'd get yelled at all the time. Um, I can remember even in the shopping mall I went to one uh, and people, these matawa they're called in Arabic, um, they come up and they'll just yell at you and if, you're not, if you don't see them coming it gives you a bit of a fright and they'll yell at you and they'll just go cover your head you know or they'll, they'll, they'll just confront you you know and it's quite intimidating, they can be quite gruff. And then um, I remember once I was at a, I went to a cultural festival and, and one of my British friends actually, he said, I've never had any problems with the religious police. What are you talking about? And I said, yeah, because you're a man. Yeah, I said, you're a he. <laughs> and so I said, just watch this. And I walked back through the, the gates of this cultural festival and I just went maybe 20 feet and I turned around and I walked back out the gate and I dropped my headscarf just a little bit and suddenly there was probably 10 religious police all kind of around me yelling at me to cover my head and stuff and my my British friend was just shocked and he said I didn't even notice them there and so the experience of men and women uh, is very very different but they'll have loudspeakers I'll tell you it's time to pray and they'll they, and I've learned they do harass not just expats they would harass heaps of people um I got into trouble once I was in the front seat of a taxi because there was uh, too many women in the was We crowded this taxi and it was illegal at the time for women to sit in the front seat of a car. Oh, so not unless, only can you not drive, you can't yeah, sit, you can't in, the sit in the front seat. front passenger seat unless you're married to the driver. So you always have to sit in the back. And, um, and I can remember we got pulled over by the police. They saw our car, saw me sitting in the front and the poor lovely taxi driver just got totally berated. And I was so upset for him because it wasn't his fault. We'd kind of pushed our way in and we'd done the wrong thing, but um, yeah, it can be bad. But they also, their powers ebb and flow. So uh, since since uh, King uh, the new king is in and since um, Mohammed bin Salman is the crown prince, They've actually, there's been phenomenal change in Saudi Arabia. Mm. So, like I said, when I first went there, it was illegal for women to ride a bicycle. Um, I couldn't run. Uh, I'd go for a run um, at night. I'd have my bio on, I'd have my headscarf on, and I'd try and run around the parks. And I, the police would just very politely kind of go, no, 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 you know, sorry, you can't do, do that. So women can't to... move quicker than a walk. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you do become quite focused on all the things you you can't do and so I realized quite quickly the way to survive and to really understand it was I had to focus on what I could do. Um, Do you mind if I pause this there Mm. in this part of Saudi because uh, in this part of your Saudi story because we are definitely going to lean into this heavily. (laughs) Uh, Well um, we've still got plenty of time although in just 13 short minutes we've uh, we've (laughs) uncovered so much already but I just I want to focus quickly um, before we totally lose the opportunity on what has led you up to this point and you've said you know you worked in so many countries Mm. in the Middle East uh, doing uh, humanitarian aid and development uh, projects so so, you know, what, what did you study? You know, how did you get over to the Middle East in the first place? Um, and what kind of work were you, were you engaged in in all these places? Yeah. And then, yeah, then we're going to go hard at Saudi. <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of fell into it. Um, I was, uh, oh gosh, yeah, I was uh, young. I was a teen- teenager still. And and if I can share my faith, I actually became a Christian when I was a teen- teenager, 17 years old. And so I actually went off to a Christian Bible college. And, was this uh, down in Brisbane or southeast Queensland? This was in... I uh, became a Christian on, in the Sunshine Coast and then I went down to a place called Goulburn and okay. I joined a near where I grew up. Christian organisation there. And there was an opportunity to then... Uh, continue Bible College and then to serve at one of their 
you know, mission station. So, uh, so I ended up, uh, there's an opportunity to go to Cyprus. And, and so I did. So I went to New Zealand for a year and continued studying. Um, and then I went and, yeah, I basically served in a guest house. So it was a Christian guest house in the Middle East. And at the time they used to host a lot of doctors and nurses um, in Cyprus because back then Dubai and Abu Dhabi and these amazing cities we have now, they, they didn't exist. And so this is like in 1979. And, um, and so I ended up serving in this guest house and the year that I was there, just working in the kitchen in this guest house, these amazing people would come through and stay in the guest house and they would tell me all their stories about what, what they were doing. And, um, and I got talking to, to lots of nurses and doctors and, and teachers and people that were working in the, in the Gulf particularly. And so there was a team then that was preparing to go to Beirut during the Civil War and these people were made up of children, support workers, teachers, um, just a, a mixed team that were going in to do this relief and development work in, in Beirut during the war. And I actually just went, oh my gosh, I want to go with them. And I asked if I could go and my leader in the kitchen said no you can't you're here to work in the guest house and to serve in the guest house but I really felt quite compelled to, to go and then eventually I nagged him I just nagged him enough to let me go and he said all right you can go with this this little outreach team and so I never had such a feeling of coming home so when I f I remember flying into Beirut 1980 and I remember feeling like I was coming home and I absolutely fell in love with the Middle East and I can't even explain it. And but that really just captivated my heart. And so then I've been doing a lot of work in that relief and development zone. And relief and development work is um, it's it's like a whole underground culture, <laughs> little subculture that goes on. So a lot of jobs and works and teams I ended up doing was um, very much just knowing people and knowing of opportunities, hearing of opportunities. So I learnt quite quickly that any formal degree, I didn't have a degree, didn't have any study as such, and I learnt though I'm very good at organising pe people, and so I, I tended to take on roles that were logistical roles, so I ended up organising teams that were going into war zones and to relief and development situations. Uh, like earthquake relief, did, did some earthquake relief work as well. So organising the crisis teams that would go in and so I'd be organising teams of builders or doctors and nurses and so I was just very good at organising all of the logistics that goes on with that. So yeah, so that's how I ended up in Iraq during the first Gulf War. So sorry, we were just in Beirut and then you were doing the same job, you chose to do yeah, the same job Yeah, I went to quite Iraq. a few places Yeah, over yeah. the years so I also did that in India and um, yeah, heaps of places, too many stories. <laughs> but it was actually when I was in Iraq that, was, that really led me to where I am now because it was when I was in Iraq I really saw that the greatest, the greatest catalyst for positive social changes in education and particularly in the education of women. And that... I realised then the real way to make everlasting change or real change in a, in a place is through education. So I came back to Australia in 93 and I got, I started, I did a TESOL certificate which is just teaching English to speakers of other languages and, uh, and that set me on a whole completely different kind of trajectory with my career and I then I've been in education and training ever since. Tell, um, tell us about these profound differences that you've just described um, or alluded to as a result of education. So when you bring a greater amount of education and better education to an area or a country, mm. you know, what social changes tend to follow after mm. that? I think one of the greatest things is that education gives people access to resources. So it gives them access to empowerment, uh, it gives them access to um, further education and ter ter tertiary education so they themselves will then go on to become the doctors and community leaders and the teachers themselves. Um, it, it opens up opportunities for business, uh, so for that whole local economic sustainable bu businesses. Um, it gives people access to travel and to other opportunities. 
So while the work I was doing before was very much critical work, very necessary work, providing medical people, builders, food, um, all of those things, what actually, as I said, makes great lasting changes in education and also it, particularly in a country that has such a high value on education because they they want it this and that's why often we we might we realize that say te teachers and educators are really highly valued and that's something australia could learn more you know and so um they value it because they also recognize how important it is so in my work in saudi arabia it was just a great opportunity for me to witness and be a part of the transformation that they were doing them, themselves you know that it comes it has to come from within mm. yeah yeah people um often don't respond to that external pressure quite like they do to that sort of internal mm. uh, or yeah. those internal needs to change yeah, yeah if the propensity is there from within and there's a hunger for it and and all you're doing then is you're just a a vessel, a tool. You're you're just helping facilitate it, you mm. know, and and that's a great pr privilege. So, so for me, I, I remember getting the call and asking if I would I would um, take a position as uh, as director for you know this these new colleges they were opening amongst the country for for women. So they had universities, but they didn't have trade colleges. So like a bit almost like what our TAFE system. Mm. So this is in Saudi. Yeah, so women, wealthy women, would go to university. They would travel. They could go to America, and, but there was no training in things um, like um, uh, trade or IT or computer skills or even teaching or um, yeah, all the things that we now go to TAFE and those kind of private colleges for. So you know, which are trades. Th these are skills for jobs. Yeah. You know? So. Um, and I jumped at it. And what was funny was I was offered two lo locations. I was offered the east coast of Saudi in a big school in a fantastic city right across the causeway from Bahrain. So heaps of opportunity for, you know, escaping to, to Bahrain for the weekend. And um, or in this place 200 kilometres west of Riyadh in this really remote Bedouin town called Al Gawaiya. And I knew I, was, I didn't even have to think about it I just absolutely I took the remote place and it was tough it was so tough but I absolutely loved it <laughs> yeah what, what were the people like there and the people coming through these the college that you were setting up um the women that when we opened the college with about 400 students all women aged between the ages of 18 and 24 uh, it was a partnership between a British uh, training provider and uh, the Saudi government and uh Oh, it it was just fantastic. Most of these women, were obviously, were from the area, and um, they'd had some form of education, very not no English or very little English. Um, and I also not not only did I have to recruit my international staff to work there, but I had to recruit Saudi women to come and work for the college, and that's that was the greatest challenge. So um, there was a lot of cultural resistance. Um, the school itself uh, was provided the building, the physical buildings had been abandoned for years and years and years. They'd been built years earlier for obviously a male college. And um, I'm not kidding, we had probably knee deep sand in, in most of the classrooms. Wow. And we had nests of owls in the ceilings. We had, and so one, unfortunately when the, when the workers got rid of the owls and we had mice plague. <laughs> Yeah, oh, <laughs> which what makes you know? sense. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, hey, surprise, surprise. Did they bring back the owls? No, no, yeah. got rid of the mice then. But no. um, so we had Sam. We had camels that would come through the grounds. Rogue male camels, quite don't don't dangerous actually. They make do a bit of dent and damage. Um, and I could sit from my office window, and we were right on the road that goes from the east to the west. So it's the road to, to Mecca. My colleague and I would sit in my office and watch the camel herders go past my 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 window every day, and just I was like, here we are opening, pioneering a women's college, completely new, completely culturally, in every sense, a radical new thing in the country, and yet here's this ageless tradition of the camel herders going past 
the school yeah. unchanged with the you know the Bedouin the camel herders looking as they have for hundreds of years you know wow, what a lovely mix of the old and yeah, the new it was amazing yeah yeah that is wow how, how amazing is that and uh, the um the girls over in Saudi Arabia are they typically going to school all the way from what we'd consider kindergarten to Yes. Year 12. Yes, and again, they do value education, but it comes down to more of uh, opportunity. So, um, particularly the women out in the, from the rural areas where I was, very, very limited opportunities. Uh, most of them married quite young. All I would say, almost 100% of my students and staff in the college were mums of at least maybe four or five kids. And how old would they be? Well, my girls were all like, 18 years old, uh, 18 to 24, but these these girls were mothers of already large families, and um, oh, 100% sorry, sorry, the students. Yes, the students these are the be, students. Oh, sorry, I thought you were talking about the training staff. Wow, no, so the students. Well, were and my be... staff. So all my Saudi women I employed, I would say at any time, at least 60% of my staff were pregnant. <laughs> wow. So I hope you had a strong maternity leave yeah. policy. <laughs> no maternity leave policy. Four weeks off, and they're all back back at work. Wow. Amazing, yeah. And um, oh, but just the most resilient, entrepreneurial, smart, smart women. It was just extraordinary. Yeah, I love that you say that because it was. Um, I'm not, I can't remember where I heard this, but it was a conference in Saudi Arabia where uh, Bill Gates was invited to speak. I, I can't. I don't know how recently it was, mm. but they, you know, the Saudi government had said, you know, we want to become one of the biggest tech nations, mm-hmm. you know, on you know, on the planet. And they had him talking there, and the audience was, of course, segregated into yes, into men and women. Do. Yes, yep. And uh, and so and the host was asking Bill Gates you know how, how do we do it or you know however whatever question he asked like that and Bill Gates apparently and very unapologetically said well you're not going to be able to do it while you're muzzling half your population mm-hmm. and not allowing them uh, them and their skills and their entrepreneurial mm-hmm. spirit to flourish and yes. of course everyone knew he was talking about the women of mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. and apparently that half of the audience the female half of the audience just erupted in applause yeah, you yes. know thank god someone's just yep. acknowledged us And they really are just extraordinary. So all the women that I employed, uh, that worked for me rather, um, uh, the Saudi women, all uh, this was their first experience working in a place. So I was very aware that I was their first boss. This was their first professional experience. And so it's quite surprising how you have to start, you're mentoring them, you're really mentoring them. Whereas... And I would have to remind myself, so sometimes you yeah, you'd get frustrated over things. A simple, simple, normal office procedure that we think is normal and it's quite familiar to us, but for that's them completely different. So I'll give you a funny example. So my Saudi girls uh, used to, if you looked at their office desk, it'd be covered with bottles of perfume, boxes of chocolates, big bag of makeup, maybe three phones, candles photos the whole thing right and there'd be no paperwork or anything going on you know be all sort of I don't know (laughs) and then so I I remember one day taking a group of the girls into my office and I said right let's I want you to write down everything that's on my desk which is computer paperwork stationery pencils you know calculators maybe one or two phones but but this is what, you know, files and all this kind of stuff. And then write down what's on your desk. And they still couldn't quite see the difference, even though the <laughs> lists were very different. So I said to them, I said, your desk looks like your bedroom dressing table at home. Yeah. You know, and I said, you can have all of those things, but they need to go in the drawer. And even t- t- teaching them to not be burning all these candles around really sensitive <laughs> documents <laughs> yeah. and stuff. And and it wasn't a criticism. It was that they had never seen work. A you workplace, know, they'd, yeah. They'd never gone to work with their mum. They'd never seen their mother's work. They hadn't gone to work with their dads. They hadn't seen a professional outside of that. They don't know. They don't see that. They didn't experience it. So, and I tell you, I made plenty of cultural mistakes, you know, as you do. So you're constantly learning stuff. But yeah, and you don't want to be insensitive, but I suppose you do want to teach them how to be professionals. And and you only have to tell them once. Like they're just absolutely like that wonderful 
quite hungered to actually learn. So it was a great experience for me knowing that all these women were being mentored. And now, you know, the country's changed. I was there, I remember very clearly the first time a woman was allowed to operate at a checkout. So one of the stores there called Tamimi's, they they had the first female, no, not Tamimi's, sorry, Carrefour, they had the first female checkout operators. And I remember going to that Carrefour and at Granada Mall and just saying to them, well done, good on you, you know. And they faced a lot of back- backlash to start with. It took a long time for there to be some acceptance. Not not years, we're just talking months, you know. And now there's women working in, in the shops and women working in offices. And, and yes, they still may be segregated offices, but there's becoming more and more mixed offices, mixed events. Um, it's really changed so much, and and even again, we can get into triathlon in yeah, South. We will, I promise. It we was, will soon. <laughs> it was that whole thing is a phenomenal change. Yeah, just great change in the country. Just tell me very quickly about your experience in Afghanistan. I've got to know where where were you and what were you doing? Well, that was a funny thing. I'd I'd wanted to go to Afghanistan for a while. I had a friend who was a teacher there, a woman I'd trained, and she was working there. But I happened to be at a conference in Dubai, and I met this businessman. And he mentioned he was going to Afghanistan in a few days. And I just kind of said, can I come with you? <laughs> I'd like to visit my friend. And um, Did you have a friend or was that an excuse? No, oh, I did. did. No, yeah. I really did have a friend, Rochelle. So she'd been working there for a couple of years. And um, anyway, so this guy was kind of like, yeah, actually, that'd be cool. So the next day we went, got the visa, booked flight. And basically within a few days, I found myself on this plane. And I remember flying into Afghanistan it was Valentine's Day (laughs) (laughs) because I remember that date and here I thought here I am with this strange Filipino businessman don't know anyone else I'm flying into Afghanistan on Valentine's Day I thought I really do need to get a life (laughs) (laughs) it's no wonder I'm single (laughs) 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 most people are getting taken out for dinner and I'm arriving freezing cold muddy snowy was it winter time it was winter it was freezing and I'd message my friend Rochelle um, said, through Facebook, say, hey, I'm coming to Afghanistan. And, uh, yeah, so I stayed with her. But it was during that week, um, this businessman I'd met, he said, I want you to meet someone. So I met a particular gentleman who runs a large engineering company. And he and his company had been in Afghanistan for about 18 years. It's called Morningstar. And Dad did a lot of engineering works in parks and roads and bridges and stuff. And so we sat in this little restaurant in Kabul and he was telling me all the work that he'd done and I was very impressed. And then he said, you know, he said, there's only one thing I haven't done in Afghanistan, I'd really like to, I'd like to open a school. (laughs) And I just looked at him. speaking to the right person. And I looked at him across the table and I just kind of said, well, I can actually make that happen for you because that's what I do. And it was as simple as that. We shook hands at the table and within a year we opened we opened the, a school a school for girls uh it was oh, is it, uh, it was actually mixed but we did run a lot of uh, free programs but we got a lot of government contracts we were then uh, running uh, language and english classes for a lot of the pilots that the army was american army was training we got a contract with the un for their environmental office we got a contract with another engineering company and so out of the profitable side of the company, we were able to run a lot of community pro- programs for, for women. So it also almost ran as a social enterprise. Yes. Yeah. And it was very successful. We ended up after a few years, uh, it amalgamated with another, another group. And then there was quite a change in Afghanistan uh, years later. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, the school isn't running because of the... the the Taliban takeover. Yeah, the, the sign of the times, unfortunately. Yeah, that's so unfortunate. Um, how were you feeling when all that was going down? It's very personal when you've been there because you know your own experience standing at Kabul airport, for example, and you know places and you know pe- people. I have many friends who have... Uh, I know people, friends, who have been kidnapped. Uh, I remember standing one day talking with a lovely couple and the next day they were were kidnapped and they killed the husband. It's very sobering when one day you're talking with somebody and the next day they're kidnapped and and he was killed. She was released um, six weeks later. Um, Yeah, I also narrowly survived a kidnapping attempt. They ended up taking another woman just, just near me instead of me, but everyone thought I was the one who'd been kidnapped at first. So 
uh, it was quite, you know, you hear the gunshots and I knew, uh, yeah, when you hear a gunshot and you know that someone has died while this kidnapping happened. It was pretty sobering, yeah. This was in Kabul? Yes. This, this yeah. happened? Yeah. Yes. So I never got capital. to travel outside of Kabul, even the the both times I was there because um, it, even at that time it was too unsafe to go outside the capital. Wow. Wow. Because there are some beautiful cities and beautiful mm, places yes. all through Afghanistan. Yeah. Yes. But even still, just to get into Kabul is amazing. It's yeah. an amazing country. And every time I meet people from Afghanistan, actually a funny story is two met gentlemen who had uh, studied at language school in Kabul uh, ended up migrating to Australia, coming to Australia as refugees. And I got a call one day from some friends who were teaching them and we ended up joining the dots and they were like, oh my gosh, these guys have attended your school in in, um, oh, wow. in Kabul and now they're in Australia. So, and now it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> imagine amazing. imagine where they, they might or might not be if it wasn't for that school. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. I mean... Even if it's not running now, it served the population mm-hmm. very well. Yeah, when it's it a was. really great experience. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I've uh, I've deliberately cut you off uh, from talking about triathlons uh, a couple <laughs> of times now because I know that the minute we got into it, it, it that's all that uh, it, it would be. I'm so, a true tri yeah. tragic. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you you the first time you were saying you started focusing in Saudi on the things that you could do, and so I, I suppose we're gonna. Um, begin again from that point in the conversation but it's important to note that we began uh, chatting on the weekend and you noticed my tri suit because you are a mad triathlete and endurance sport person yourself and you've got a lot of experience in that area it seems all over the world so uh, it that's I I guess the context not only for why we're talking now but also why you thought uh, up the need to begin these sports in in a country that's never seen them before so uh, well I actually got introduced to triathlon in Saudi Arabia which is a very bizarre place to start your triathlon journey I don't even know where would you swim and like is that to see that's the perception I have of Saudi is it's a big desert so I stumbled across so when I mentioned, yeah, it's very important to focus on what you can do. And what I did was I connected with um, some groups that were doing things. So I joined a hiking group there. So on the weekends we'd go hiking. I found an underground uh, salsa and tango dance group, which was amazing. And so, um, yeah, so I joined uh, as many things as I could. And that was that really was fantastic got great friends still still very very good friends from those those things and anyway um i met some expats who were doing triathlon and because i seem to do a bit of photography so one of the guys said would i mind coming along and just photographing getting some photos we were like our photos when we were doing sport so uh so i was like triathlon oh my gosh okay so when do you do this so he said right i'll pick you up at 4 30 in the morning and and anyway we went to his compound and basically it at the time it was still it's still underground but um it's uh they do have saudi arabia's finally recognized triathlon as a sport they actually have a saudi team now and they do have female saudi triathletes as well now so it's all just changed but only in the last like 18 months that it's now finally just starting to come out so out from hidden so it's a very strong tri community that's been operating illegally and underground for all these years right under the noses of the government and 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 what's funny is they they ran the first official marathon in saudi not so long ago and we were all laughing because we were going we've actually been doing marathons in saudi for years (laughs) (laughs) since they didn't know about it yeah (laughs) So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, but they have now sanctioned it and they've had their first mar- 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 marathons, which is great. I wonder what they thought you were doing when you were running the marathons and people were watching you think, gee, they, they haven't stopped running for I know, a while. Yeah, well, yeah. we would have them in very secret kind of locations. So, so basically, I turned up, at, you know, before dawn at this compound and there was several hundred pe- people there. And, and basically, you swim in a pool. And it's a 25-meter pool. Oh wow! So you're doing <laughs> 1,500 a, meters. Yeah. So you're doing your laps in 
<laughs> constant lab. So 25 metre pools, and uh, and then we'd get on the bikes, and then and well they they would at the time. So then they ride off, and then they ride out on the road, and then back into the compound to run, and they'd run inside the compound for their triathlons. And so, uh, and it's all over and done with by nine o'clock. So long before the you know police and the the general public are kind of up. So these all happen on a Friday uh. morning, and I was just totally, uh, I was just. So impressed. Uh, lovely community. Everyone was cheering and everyone was just having so much fun. And there was people of all different ages and abilities and people that looked like me. And I was like, wow, it's been a very international mix. And um, and so I I decided to, to go along again. So I went the second time. And then the second time I started to go, maybe I could have a go at this. So... So I kind of joined up. It took me three months to train and prepare to do my first little sprint, which seemed like huge at the time. And um, yeah, so I did. Uh, yeah, so I did my first triathlon in Saudi Arabia, and I've now done probably hundreds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember you telling me that something about laying out flour or something on mm-hmm. the road for, yeah. for the bike leg yes. of the triathlon yeah, so we yeah. wouldn't have any signs um because it all had to be so just while everyone was preparing for the swim there'd be a group of guys out in the cars and they would map out um they would map out the course with just uh, flour like cooking flour and they'd so there'd be a big arrow on the ground in in flour and um and we'd get a mud map you know printed out on what the route kind of was and after a while you got to know so um yeah so everything was just mapped out with flour and and uh it was just great and then so by the time the whole race is finished then you know the flour blows away and there's no evidence that we were ever there yeah the, and the police are just going why is all this flour <laughs> out know, the road yeah, yeah. we did learn uh, actually camels like flour so camels come along and lick Lick the signs <laughs> off the road. <laughs> no, that, was, that was nice of them. I hope that you were when the, the final uh, cyclist yes. just looking for that arrow that the camel's already licked it's, up. Yeah. There's still a bit of flour on the ground. So that, that's how the course was marked out. Um, if it was a duathlon, we did them out in the, in the de- desert. But any tri events where there was, um, or multi-sport event where there was a pool, it had to be inside the compound. And, um, oh, it was just madness, but it was just so much, so much fun. And, you know, anywhere between two and 400 athletes would turn up. And, and basically you'd have to register. And then two nights prior to the race, you'd get an email to tell you where the race was. So the locations are kind of kept under wraps until just be- before. And everyone's in strict instructions not to pu- publish that information anywhere. Mm. So it was just absolutely fantastic. And I that's where I fell. And fell in love with it. Like my first triathlon, I mean... I was incredibly slow. I couldn't run off the bike, but I bawled my eyes out. I was such an emotional mess crossing that finish line for me. It was such a huge achievement, and I've been doing it ever since. And so you were running the run leg, the 10 kilometres. Was that still done inside the compounds? Yep. And yes. so what was the perimeter of these compounds? <laughs> Sometimes pretty small. <laughs> You're doing a whole lot of laps. <laughs> yeah. A lot of laps of the pool. In fact, we had people counting our laps for us in the pool because literally you would lose count yeah you're doing 60 laps or something so you would have uh, counters counting marking off your laps and um and actually one of the funny thing we'd have four people sharing one lane really yes so four people in each lane so there'd be like six lanes and to get everyone through the swim um, it's it's almost it, it really replicates a good open water swim where you get bashed around. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, your legs get grabbed and someone flattens someone you and pushes over the you top down. Of you yeah. and all that stuff. So it was pretty much uh, like an open water swim in a pool. It was chaos. It was absolute chaos. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just um, I'm just picturing the people planning out the triathlon. And then halfway through, a policeman walks in, and everyone quickly wrapping up the maps yep, and yeah. you know, flipping the table over yeah, and pretending. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, having yeah. to keep it all. Very, we used yeah. to get harassed, so particularly women. So at the time when I started, there was only maybe out of the two to four hundred athletes, you'd be lucky if there was um, maybe ten to twenty women. And so we would get harassed. So the minute anyone who did see us. Um, they'd often be in their cars so we did have some extra guys out on cars trying to help protect our security as well but we would 
we would get really harassed by when you by say something. harassed what do you, what do you mean they would drive up beside you in a car they might try and run you off the road um, they would yell at you for sure it was quite it was quite a, a spectacle for them to see women out riding on bikes and were you having to ride in your headscarf and everything no no we would just wear our normal tri suits we would yeah. put extra shirts on so we would wear long sleeves and we'd have a big loose like a you know, man sized shirt over the top of our tri suits while we were out riding the bikes um, some of the girls would wear special abayas that you can uh, running abayas, um, but uh, yeah, we try and be as modest as as we could um, in that situation. It's hard to do a triathlon in a full abaya. Yeah, and and I, I can't imagine it would have been uh, chilly weather. Like it would have been hot. It was right? very hot. Yeah, yeah, very very hot. So triathlon is a summer sport because we don't like cold water. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but over there it has to be a winter sport. No, no, it's a summer sport. It's still a su- yeah, summer sport? Yeah, we still yeah. do it all um, during summer. Really? Mm. Yeah, it's hot. The, the season actually over there now is just wrapped up. So, mm. yeah. So. Okay, wow. And you did tell me there was a couple of times the triathlon got busted, right? There was uh, No, the- no. The triathlon never got busted. No, what did get busted though is often then on the weekend we'd go for social rides. Okay. And so there would be groups of us and there might be 20 or 30 riders. And I used to, I only, uh, I only did a few times because I'd end up getting busted. So um, so you'd ride, I would wear the cycle gear exactly the same as the guys. So I would try and stay in the middle of the pack. Um, the guys would try and protect you. And sometimes, usually it might only be myself and maybe one other female rider. And it's very hard sometimes to keep up with the guys, to stay close enough to them to stay inside the group. And then the minute you're kind of exposed, and I think the police would look for us too. So so um, I had several, several times where we'd get out and we'd like do a 60K ride and then halfway through there'd be a police car and they'd stop. And so I remember one time myself and one of the other girls had like a 30K ride back to the cars with a police car behind us with their lights flashing the whole way as an escort as an escort back to the car so instead of just letting us continue to ride with the guys we weren't allowed so we would have to go back and i do have a lovely saudi friend who who did the rides a few times and she had got she got taken to the police station um that you know that was a few years ago but it's um like i said it is opening up it's a little bit more relaxed now than it was but still got to be very careful yeah and over there, you were, I mean, you were introduced to triathlons, but were you also organizing events? Yes, yeah, so yourself? I joined the committee. As mm-hmm. I do, I threw myself in. And uh, one of the first friends I really made in the tri club, she, she was in the committee and, and she said, Kim, you, you, you belong here, she said. So, and they needed help. So, and then, uh, then when the, the, the club chairman uh, left, because not many, you know, he, he had to, he moved for his job. And no one else wanted to do it, so I ended up becoming the club president for two years, and and learned it was great because I learned a lot about running events and running triathlons, and we would hold you know all these events simultaneously, and um, and it was fantastic, and the club really grew. I and uh, I'm very much a believer that it's not just about the sport; it's about the community that gathers around that sport is what makes it great and that's what really made me so committed to triathlon because the triathlon community is just so supportive and and a family just becomes like a family yeah and you've since you've been back in australia you've already been the president of what the uh, sunshine, sunshine coast, coast Tri club yeah 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 right yeah. so <laughs> you just I'm... can't stay away <laughs> <laughs> well it's like anything any any community thing you know always need help in committees and stuff so i ended up yeah i ended up being the the, the chairman i've just handed that on um, to come up to Cairns. so um, yeah, so no, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not a president of Man Club right now for not the first yet. time you've, in a while. You've only been here two weeks, Is haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Anything could happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll check in again in and, a month. <laughs> look, I mean, I know people hearing this podcast don't know what the thing I look like, but I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm over 60 and I am not a fast, you know, I'm not, I don't look like a triathlete, you know, I'm, I'm a mature veteran of the sport now, but I'm. Well, I wouldn't even say a veteran. I feel like I'm still learning. But, um, you know, I've come last in plenty of races. I think I hold the record for coming last at Kalanda Triathlon two years in a row. I don't think <laughs> anyone else has come so consistently last. And I don't like to think of it as I'm the last winner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I mean, what do they what do they call anyone who doesn't come first, second or third? It's a finisher, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's all about just having a go and having fun and, and knowing. I mean, I know my journey. Everyone has a journey. Everyone has a why, and that's what I love about the sport, um, understanding and, and uh, seeing where people have come from in the sport. Everyone, you know, I'll have people go, oh, I could never do that. I have a dodgy knee or I have this. And I go, yeah, we all have something. We've all got something to overcome. No, it puts in hours of training, but you just have to start somewhere. And when I first started, I was swimming, swimming 100 metres, you know, I'd get to the end of 100 metres, I'd be gasping for breath. Now I can swim two kilometres and I love it, you know. But you started and every single person started at that absolute beginning. Um, same with cycling. Gosh, I can remember first time I cycled 10 kilometres I thought it was fantastic and now you know I like to do really long rides and spend four hours on a bike it's fantastic but you start somewhere and every single person starts somewhere and we've all got health or family or time we're all you know we've all got stuff to overcome so so you know don't look at the person where they're at they've all come from somewhere Mm, yeah I actually I'd I'd love to hear your perspective on a conversation I was having with Jenna last night because we were uh, watching this show on Netflix it's called I think Human Playground and it's just all about the extreme things humans put themselves through Mm -hmm. in the name of overcoming some kind of pain and we're talking like there was one there was a lady in her 60s from America running the world's hardest ultra marathon through the Sahara Desert and you know and another lady who oh that'd be the one up in Morocco Uh, yeah it it must be be yeah 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 yeah. and uh there was another lady who would go diving in ice lakes uh and and practice free diving in there because she had come from a background of sexual assault or she had sexual assault in her past and and that was her way of regaining control Mm -hmm. was to Mm -hmm. go into those extreme environments Mm -hmm. and overcome them and Jenna was uh, asking me, you know, like, well, what what is so appealing? Because I'm someone, as you know, like, I get involved in endurance events. I've, I've previously been in the military. I, I get out there and do some crazy things sometimes. And she goes, well, why do you and people like you and, and these people I'm watching on the TV, like, wh- wh- why are you so into that? Like, what? And I couldn't really explain it uh, beyond, well, it's just how we like to live and mm. it's how we find happiness and and but you've first got to go through this arduous journey and then mm. the happiness comes at the end it's yeah look i think for me i and i always tell people the hardest the hardest part of a race is is not getting to the finish line it's getting to the start line it's that's the hardest part of a race if you get to that start line and you start you've already won you've already accomplished it you've you've made it because it people hold themselves back because they put all these self-doubts and they think they can't do it and so they pull away so I always think getting to the start line is the hardest part of any race what kept me going in triathlon like I said I'm not you know I have won some medals now but only because you know there's not that many women in my age group anymore (laughs) you're you're outliving your competition (laughs) and I represented Australia I represented Australia at the world championships in Spain a few years ago awesome just fabulous uh great experience but what really kept me in in triathlon really really did get me hooked was not just the community and the support but actually the mental toughness of endurance sport because every single person will get to a part of a race where you go everything's hurting I'm in a world of pain why am I doing this what the frick was I thinking when I signed up I don't want to do this you know it's it's cold it's hot it's hard whatever it is it's tough you always in some time in your race or event will want to give up you will want to give up and it's your self-talk that will get you to the finish line it's understanding that actually we can achieve 60% more than what we think we can purely on mental toughness and that's what got me into the race because I remember my first ever marathon I got to 30 kilometers and I thought I can't do this like I'd reached really the end of my physical training and strength and I thought how can I keep going for another 12 k's and and I just thought you know what I'm just gonna keep going until I fall flat on my face and the next thing 12 kilometers later and I cross the finish line again a blubbering mess (laughs) 
<laughs> get very emotional at finish lines. Mm. And that's when you go, oh, my gosh. And when you've done that, you really feel like you can do anything. It's the most amazing experience to know that it's actually your mental toughness because every athlete will run out of their physical strength. Your nutrition is is incredibly important, but it's your mental toughness that will get you there. And that's what got me hooked because I realized, oh, my gosh, I'm actually tougher than I ever thought I was and ever thought it was possible to be. And and that's what keeps me going in endurance events. I'm wondering now what you would consider the thing in your life that's been the toughest thing to overcome because you've been in some tough places, uh, been in some challenging situations, and I wonder if you can pinpoint the moment mm. that you found something just so tough and you, and you, and you did overcome it. Mm. That's a really great question and to be honest yeah I have been through some if you you know I could probably answer what's been my most scariest moment or what's I'd welcome that story too uh, but my toughest thing to overcome gosh that's that's a hard one I don't know it's certainly been a lot um yeah it's I'd have to really think about that I'm sorry I can't think of yeah, well, well uh, doing, on the sequel podcast part yeah, two. Maybe, well, yeah, maybe, yeah. I'll have to think about that because uh, there's certainly been some really tough, tough challenges, yeah. And like I said, I, people people see you on a race that cheering you on, it's, but it's, it's – and triathlon is, in some sense, it feels like a community sport because we're all – but actually it, it's you. It's just you out there and you have to dig – really deep to find yourself sometimes and you do and then that's what keeps you going were you able to have a complete a subject change but were you able to still practice your faith when you're in the middle east uh, mm, very much so yes yes and actually i love that about my journey in the middle east because i am just who i am i my faith is very natural for me it's just a natural part of my life. I don't like to think of myself as... I'm certainly not religious as far as I hate that term. Um, I have very strong, rock-solid relationship with God and my faith is very central to me. And so in Saudi Arabia, for example, in a place where you really... You know, it's, wow, one of the toughest countries in the world um, to be a Christian and and yet... If any of my staff would come to me, I'd talk to them. I would pray. I'd say they'd, they'd share something with me, and I'd go, "Can I pray for you?" And I'd just say, "I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus. Is that okay?" And they never ever has any. I never ever have anybody refuse and say no. Mm. And so I've just lived my faith very nat- naturally. And I think too because working with people of other faiths, so Muslims, that I've worked with. They're people of faith as well, and they really understand it, and they respect it, and they recognise yeah. it. So actually, no, I've never had any net negative issues with my faith. Yeah, yeah, spirituality definitely recognises spirituality, doesn't mm. it, in that way. Yeah, mm. I wonder if even people just have tougher times uh, living their faith uh, in in countries like Australia. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. I, I would agree, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, before we sign off, we're nearly at an hour, wouldn't you believe? Uh, tell us a bit about what you're doing now up here in Canada. Well, I'm working for Torres Strait Islands Regional Council, and so I'm a training and development officer. And um, my role is really to support their learning and training, um, enable to grow professional development with their jobs. And I'm uh, absolutely loving it. I, working with Torres Strait Islands is just a joy. They're just wonderful people great joy I've never, I don't think I've ever worked in an office where there's so much joy it's just a lovely place and I was up on the islands last week and oh, I mean it was just a great experience I'm looking forward to continuing my new career yeah yeah hopping around the, that lovely part of Australia which not many people get to see mm, not many Australians yeah. get to see yeah called the Torres Strait I'd love to see it one day I don't know how many podcasts I've said that on now, but yeah. Um, <laughs> you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems um seems like a beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah, but and like you said, both the ge- geography and the people, mm. yeah, and the community, I imagine. Yeah, well, Kim, uh, I think um, for now I've run out of uh, questions, but I'll probably think, I reckon I'll think of a thousand more tonight. And like <laughs> when I'm in bed, I should have asked that, I should have asked that. So, but thanks so much for, for giving me your time. Well, it was great to meet you. It was very serendipitous, really. It was, was awesome. Yeah, yeah, and I like to remind people on uh, on the podcast that that's what this podcast is all about. Mm. It is just 
not only striking up the conversation and maintaining the conversation and having the conversation with people you don't know, but then like really celebrating it and sharing their stories and yeah. And then I just have the privilege of having a small platform here to, to share them on. So it was serendipitous, but I'm glad it, I'm glad it happened. Yeah. So um, until next time. Thank you. Yeah, it's thank been you. great. Bye everyone. How Good Are Humans is a modest project just trying to share stories that are truly special and inspiring. It's produced on no budget and relies heavily on the support of its audience. If you felt personally moved or inspired by what you heard today, please consider supporting this project by sharing it with others. You can do this by liking, commenting, or sharing the Instagram posts on your social channels. You can also share the podcast and its episodes by word of mouth. The next time a friend or family member asks you, for a podcast worth listening to. Thank you. And please remember, the most inspiring person that you've never met could be sitting right beside you.